Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast feed. This week, I'm joined by Chef Tyler Stemmer. He's the executive chef over at Pleasantry in Cincinnati, Ohio. Pleasantry's uh, right off the main drag there in the Over the Rhine neighborhood, OTR. Previously, we had Dan Souter, who's one of the co-owners and the sommelier at Pleasantry on the podcast a handful of episodes ago. So he got into kind of how Pleasantry came to be and the origins and all that stuff too as well. Uh, so if you haven't listened to that episode, make sure to check that out. You can find it in the feed. I'm labeled chefs and guests, you know, sommelier, Dan Souter. You can also find it on the website. But for this episode, is pretty interesting. We get to talk to Chef Tyler and, you know, he hasn't really worked at a whole lot of places. Once he winds up at Pleasantry, it's kind of one of the first few places that he worked at and he's been there for a number of years. And then when the previous executive chef left, you know, he took over and was promoted and, and he's been running the kitchen since. So we kind of get into a lot more detail about being a first-time executive chef and, and cooking and kind of ethos and vision and how you plate things and, and all that kind of stuff. So it, it kind of gets in a little bit more detail than probably we normally do on some people who have been executive chefs for years. So uh, it's super interesting in that regard. Plus, I mean, he's got a really crazy hobby that he participates into as well that I didn't really know anything about. Kind of stumbled upon it for the first time. So we get in depth on that and just his career and everything and future, you know, kind of plans he has and stuff. So it's a really awesome episode. If you haven't uh, ever been down to Pleasantry, I recommend you do so. It's an amazing restaurant. It's one of the best restaurants in Cincinnati. The food's awesome. You know, they got a great wine list that Dan puts together. Specials, uh, like Sundays is usually they have like a chicken sandwich and then they have usually like a steak and fries um, special on Wednesday nights too as well. But the food's amazing. The stuff that we've had, you know, we talk about the Parmesan ice cream, which is something that he created and it's super out of the box and super weird. It's really, really good though when we went down there and visited late last year. So uh, again, make sure to check them out if you haven't. They have a website and everything. But you can follow Tyler on Instagram at bad underscore Thai, T-H-A-I. Also follow Pleasantry the Restaurant on Instagram at Pleasantry O-T-R. You can follow us on Instagram too as well at SpoonMob. We're on Twitter and Facebook. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com. We have all the podcasts, uh, all the profiles and pictures of everybody who's been on the podcast up there. Um, they're all in pretty much chronological order. So the name that you see at the top is the latest. And then going down, the ones at the bottom would be the oldest. Uh, except for, I think, in the chef section, the ones all the way at the bottom would be sushi chefs. I have not learned Japanese, so wouldn't be able to conduct a podcast with those folks uh, currently. So would have to find a translator or learn Japanese or something like that, which um, who knows. But um, that's kind of it for the intro. It's a cool episode. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Chef Tyler Stemmer, the executive chef over at Pleasantry in Cincinnati, Ohio. Cool. Well, thanks again for taking some time out of your off day. I know you guys are off today for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. You are the chef over at Pleasantry, which is an awesome restaurant in Cincinnati. I think it's one of the best in the city. I mean, there's a lot of great restaurants in Cincinnati and, and we'll get to some Cincinnati stuff I got kind of later on in the episode here, but Start where we always do with everybody. Uh, at the beginning, I mean, you yourself are born and raised in Cincinnati, right? So how did you first kind of get started cooking? I know you've had a few different ventures that you've been kind of in. I think you were in a band too as well at one point, or maybe still are. But how did you kind of first get into cooking and restaurants? Well, my dad actually worked in kitchens when I was a kid. He always loved to cook. I was the house like when my friends came over. There was always something good in the fridge, you know, so everybody wanted to come hang out. And, you know, until I moved out, my dad made a, a home cooked meal every night and we sat down and we ate. 
once I realized that was like a, a real job you could have, I was like, okay, well, like, you know, this seems like right up my alley. I should, I should try this. Plus I was just obsessed. The minute I stepped foot in a kitchen, I was like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> was that your first job ever in a restaurant kitchen? Yes. It's the only thing I've, I've ever done. My first job actually was a, a food runner at Riverbend um, down on the banks of the Ohio. Yeah. And I didn't care about it then. It was just, I needed to get a job. You know, I was like 17, 18. And it just kind of, with that experience, I got in the door at a, a place called Tellers of Hyde Park when I was like 19. And that was the first time I ever saw like real kitchen, like the hustle, the bustle, the intensity. I was like, uh, I was just immediately hooked. You know, I started as a food runner and within my first year, I was like, I just want to be a cook. Can I be a cook? Yeah. And they let me, they were like, yeah, you're not going to make as much money. And I was like, yeah, I don't care. What was it about seeing the kitchen in action that kind of pulled you in towards it? I think that it was just the fast paced of it. it. I've always been someone that can easily get like stuck in my own thoughts, in my own head. And it was just like, it just, when you're busy, it just pulls you to the surface. You know, you, you don't have time to think about, you know, anything that's going on in your life. You're just like, okay, what's my next move right now? We got to go. I just found a lot of like, uh, a lot of motivation in that it you know the discipline you got to be on top of everything and honestly i i'm not gonna lie i kind of like showing off a little bit too you know i like being good at stuff you get to put a little bit of yourself out there you know and and i like that to a certain degree and i liked you know tasting new food and i really liked learning about ingredients and i can always tell when someone hasn't spent a lot of time in a kitchen because they're like, oh, this is good. And I'm like, no, that's the cheap stuff. Yeah, I'll tell you about what's really good. And So after high school, did you ever consider going to culinary school or going to college or anything? Or were you just kitchens is where I want to be? Kitchens is it? I never thought about college. You know, when I was in high school, I thought I was going to be a rock star. You know, that was pretty much my main focus. Uh, all I did was play music. Um, that's kind of all I cared about. I knew I wasn't going to go to college. It wasn't even like a it wasn't like a thing my family pushed me for. They pretty much were like, this is pointless to try and like, my parents didn't go to college. So there was no pressure really. And uh, they were just glad that I had some kind of like focus or drive or vision or something like that, you know, that I wasn't just a lost soul bouncing through time and space. You kind of strike me as like the creative type, you know, based on music, chef and everything. I'm assuming that like, you know, art class was probably like one of your favorite classes, but like, English like you hated? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I enjoyed art. I didn't take anything half as seriously as I wish I would have in high school. My parents got divorced when I was a preteen. And I just kind of took that angst all the way to like my 20s and just, you know, wasted a lot of time. And wasn't until I got a little older that I even realized that I might have something to offer the world or have any kind of thought like that. So I, I just, uh, you know, I just didn't pay attention. All I wanted to do was get out and go play music and go smoke pot and stuff like that. But I wish I would have taken it a little bit more seriously because, you know, there could have been a million things I probably could have done. But, you know, there's no point in thinking about that now, I guess. I ask this to everybody. I'm always curious about their answer. If someone in your kitchen today who's working there came up to you and was like, hey, I'm super passionate about being a chef. You know, I want to run my own kitchen one day, you know, possibly open my own restaurant. And they asked you if they should go to culinary school or not. What would you tell them? Absolutely. If you can afford it and you can fit it into your schedule, you know, um, I still think about going back sometimes just because I've worked with a lot of culinary school graduates and dropouts that couldn't cook their way out of a paper bag. But you know, they know a lot about terminology and techniques and things like that. And 
you know, maybe they weren't ever going to be a chef, but I have worked with some cooks where I'm a little envious of just like their, the amount of just like pure knowledge of the, they have where I'm just like, man, you, I didn't know that was called this, or I didn't know that was called this or, but nothing beats real time experience. In my opinion, I think if you're young, you should absolutely try and go to culinary school. After that though, you should go cut your bones somewhere. I wish I would have just moved to New York or Chicago or somewhere like that and just just grinded for a few years because I mean that's where you're really going to learn, you know, figure out if you've got it, figure out if you're really passionate about it, figure out if you want to stand on your feet for 10 to 12 hours a day and all that stuff. So why didn't you move to like New York or Chicago or LA or something? I think I was scared. I don't know how to say this really without sounding like dramatic, but I kind of grew up a little bit on the poverty level, I guess, you know, not that we were ever like went without, but I grew up with a single father. He was always stressed about money and work. And uh, that kind of like rubbed off on me. And I, I was just always too stressed about life to actually just like go like move away. That just seemed like too big. I was like, no way. There's no way I could handle that. Like, and now I'm a little bit older, you know, and I don't, I'm so established here. I'm like, I don't know if it'd be worth it. And I've gone and staged in Chicago and, you know, you can pick up a lot like that, but yeah, I, uh, that would be my advice for a younger person that was like, I want to take some serious steps into chefhood. I'd be like, just go move to like where, you know, go work in a Michelin starred restaurant a little bit, go work under some cool chef that you've heard of, you know, go, go work a ton of places too. go work everywhere, go work six months here, six months there, six months there. And uh, just see everything, everything that you can while you're, you know, try and make something that's original or yours, figure out your identity, I guess. Where does your career go after high school, but before you wind up at Pleasantry? You mentioned you staged in Chicago, like that gap in time, there is nothing about your career like on the World Wide Web about that time. So fill in that gap for me between those two life events, you know, what happens in there? You know, when I, I first started cooking, I was so gung-ho about it. And this is probably in 2010, 2011. You know, I was all in. I had the chef pants and the chef coat and started spending money on knives and stuff like that. And I, I did that for a few years at Teller's. I moved to Myrtle Beach when I was 20 and I was a, a busser at a house of blues. And so I was just always in the industry. But I also had this dream of playing music professionally. So there, I was always going back and forth between like working some random job that wasn't like going to get me anywhere as a chef, but it was flexible hours so that I could go play music at night. And that's where I was before Pleasantry is I was just working at some crap sandwich shop. You know, it allowed me to go do my music thing. And then um, oh, the management there was just so terrible. I just, I, uh, I just didn't show up one day. And I hit up a friend of mine who uh, was working at Pleasantry at the time. And I was like, I saw you guys need cooks. Do you think you could put in a word with the chef for me? Who was Evan? He said, yeah, Evan texted me. You know, the minute I got in those doors, it was just a, a reawakening into like, oh, this is something I really care about. This is something that I'm fascinated by. And this is something that I, I feel like I, I could do. Like I've got a shot at it. Yeah, I don't have one of those like uh, stories where it's like, you know, like I mean, a lot of guys my age, they're stoked about pleasantry and they're stoked to talk to me, but they're just like, where'd you learn? Like, where'd you go? Like, what's your thing? And I'm like, man, I have no idea. I just bounced around from random restaurant to random restaurant, sometimes taking it seriously, sometimes not at all and wanting to play music. And then, uh, you know, pleasantry is probably the final step for me where I was like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to go all in on this. Um, I took a salary position with them pretty shortly on and just gave up music. 
I've just focused on cooking ever since. You know, I, there's still a ton of stuff I feel like I need to learn. And, and I, I just do. I'm always trying to stroll through a cookbook or pay attention to Instagram. And, you know, my favorite thing is to go out of town and just go eat at like three or four restaurants a day for a couple of days. Like that's, that's the idea of a vacation for me is I'm just like, great, we have four reservations tonight. Let's do it. But yeah, I didn't really work anywhere like prestigious. I never worked anywhere like basic Cincinnati stuff. Before you wind up then at Pleasantry, it really seems like music was kind of your focus. Like you were still in restaurants, you still enjoyed that, but it was all about finding a place that had the flexible hours for the music career. Where is the moment in there that you kind of decide music's either not going anywhere or maybe you're losing interest or whatever it is and you decide to shift your focus towards being a chef? The week I started at Pleasantry, I played my last show in a band. And that was just a coincidence, you know, that wasn't like a decision I made. But the band thing was just kind of falling apart. There's a huge part of me that is an artist at heart, you know, and with that comes like a fickleness sometimes. And with music, I can never decide like it's emotional. It's it's dramatic. You're like, I was uh, leading my own project at the time. I was playing guitar, writing my own songs and singing. And it just started to feel like maybe I didn't want to keep doing this. I met a lot of people throughout the years of playing music in the scene. And I just started to feel like that I really didn't like or fit the identity of like that kind of person. I don't know. I just was starting to fall out of love with it, I guess. Um, and just right about that time, I was falling back into love with cooking. And uh, I feel like I wasted a ton of time in my 20s, like you know, not knowing what I wanted or, or kind of bouncing back and forth between the two and never really gaining a lot of traction with either. Yeah, when I started at Pleasantry, I just, I saw what Evan was doing and he was a, you know, I consider him, you know, more or less a mentor. He, he just kind of saw that I was taking it seriously. He saw that I was willing to grow and to learn and to learn from my mistakes and keep going and show up every day. And um, I learned a lot from him. As somebody who never played in a band, loosely understands probably the music industry. The band that you were in, was it the Fainting Goats? Yeah, we, I mean, we shredded. It was sick. It was like a psychic rock band, you know, stoner rock, doom rock, whatever you want to call it. Tons of distortion, heavy drums, um, just getting super stoned and seeing how hard we could play. That was a ton of fun. I will never forget doing stuff like that. But at a certain point, this isn't sustainable for me. Like I need to like start thinking of things that are like gonna lead to better places than maybe spending all of my time in a van on the road or just hanging out in low lit stinky bars all night. And uh, I mean, I played my first show in a band when I was like 14. I've been playing music since I was 12. So for over a decade, I just was all about just music, 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 playing music music equipment, bands, all this stuff. And uh, I don't know, just within like six months, I just completely let go of it all. For whatever reason, I just, I haven't even played guitar or drums or anything in probably a year or two. It's not because I don't want to. It's just like, I just don't have, I don't know. Like sometimes I'll, I'll have a few drinks and I'll feel spry and I'll go down and I'll warm up the amp and, you know, jam around for a while, but that's rare. And I don't even know how or why it happened. It just kind of ended up like that. 
being in a band at least seems very similar to almost the kitchen, right? You got your executive chef is kind of the leader of the band. I think most people probably associate it with being like the lead singer, the vocalist, but that's not always the case. The rest of the kind of band is made up like the rest of the kitchen and you have different people that focus on your drummer, your guitarist, your bass, all that stuff. With that, is it similar to being in a band that's an independent, you guys are kind of driving around in a van and everything to different shows, you're constantly plugging in new members just like you would like a kitchen over the course of a year or two, you know, kind of same deal or? Uh, Yeah, I mean, there are so many parallels and I think that's why I thrive in a kitchen is because, you know, one, I love to perform. You know, I, I, like I said earlier, I, I just, I enjoy putting myself out there a little bit, you know, with the kitchen. When I came to Pleasantry, I was just like, it was like, oh, this is just like a blank canvas where I can just like come in and, and just like, there's no limit to what I can create. It just felt very DIY. And those were my roots, like in a band is, uh, you know, we would get four tracks, cassettes and just like we made all of our own recordings and and we just did everything ourselves and I didn't even know that DIY was a thing until I was like 20 and then there was a DIY scene and and I was like DIY what like do it yourself like what is that because we had just been doing it on cassettes for so long that's just the only way we knew how so I definitely that translates into kitchens you know um working under pressure you know there's this thing in kitchens where you know, I always tell young cooks, I'm like, hey, you might be tired today. You might be hungover. You might be a little sick. The thing is, is like people coming through the door, they don't know. And to be honest, they probably, they might care if you explained it all to them, but like, that's not why they're here. So it's like, there's this, the show must go on kind of aspect of it all. And some people can handle that. And some people can't where it's like, you know, as, as one of the things as a chef that you have to reckon with is like, unless I am about to die, I, I probably got to go into work today and take care of business. And, and then that doesn't bother me for the most part. Sometimes it, it kind of blows, but I mean, that's the life I signed up for. And I think a good chef probably has an understanding of that and has made their peace with it. But that's always what I'm, I'm you know, thinking about is just like when you're a performer, you know, no one, there's so many stories. Like I had a drummer once when I was getting to know him, uh, he was a great drummer. And there's this video of him online where he's playing a show. And he leans over his drum set and just throws up everywhere. Doesn't drop the beat, doesn't miss anything, comes back up, finishes the whole set. You know what I mean? And I'm like, that's just the embodiment of kind of what those two, you know, occupations are is, is the show must go on. So one kind of prepared me for the other one, I feel like. So you're at Pleasantry. You mentioned that you staged in Chicago for a minute. What restaurant did you stage at? My first vacation that I took as a salary employee at Pleasantry, I went up to Chicago by myself and just ate at uh, a bunch of restaurants. And then um, we had someone working for us at Pleasantry named Maddie Colston. And I told him I was going to Chicago and I was looking for a stage. And he was like, well, he helped open this restaurant in Chicago called Parachute. And he was like, you know, the chef there, he, they had a new spot called um, Wherewithal. And he was like, well, let me reach out to a couple of people and see if I can't get you a stage. And sure enough, by the end of the shift, he was like, yep, here's your stage. Here's what time you need to be there. And uh, yeah, good luck, man. And so I staged at Wherewithal in Chicago. It was an awesome restaurant. At the time I staged there, I'm not sure if they're still doing this, but they basically had one menu and it was kind of different every day. So you'd get the tasting menu and, and the next night, half of it might be a little bit different just based on what product they were getting. And um, it was definitely one of those like find 
dining places where if you shut your cooler door too hard, the chef comes over and is like, hey, got to quiet down over there. You know, so it's just very like serious. And it was just great to get a little insight into that because, uh, you know, Pleasantry has some fine dining vibes, but at the end of the day, we're very casual. But I do think that you can learn a lot from that kind of discipline you get in a fine dining restaurant. So I just realized that without going to culinary school and without like cutting my bones at any classic French restaurant or anything like that, uh, I've really had to pull from everywhere all the time to try and make up for lost time, I guess. So I really feel like when I'm in certain situations, like I really know how to pay attention and get the most out of it. So whenever I go out to eat, like that, when I went to Chicago, you know, that trip was a a defining trip in my culinary career because they sat me down after the stage and they were like, so what's up? You you moving to Chicago? You want to work here? What's going on? And I was like, no, I'm actually on vacation. I just came up to see, you know, how some real restaurants are working and what's going on up here. And they were like, so you're not looking for a job? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm going back in a couple of days. And they were just like, okay, well, will you fill out a uh, application anyway so we can have you on file? And I was like, I guess so, sure. <laughs> you know, at the time I was a sous chef uh, at Pleasantry trying to make the most out of that experience. And I was just curious. I was like, how much would you guys start me at like up here? And he was like, 14, 14 bucks an hour. And at the time I was like, that's eh, not great, but it's not terrible either. You know, it's, a, it's kind of... You know, I don't know how I'd survive in Chicago on that, but I could figure it out. Definitely tempting, but um, I never got around to it. Is staging at restaurants something that you'll consider doing in the future? You know, when you have vacation time, you'll still do that so you can keep learning. And is that something that you think more chefs, whether they be sous chefs or, or what have you, should be taken advantage of? Because I think most people think stage and they think, oh, you went to New York or you went overseas you could basically stage like at a restaurant in Cleveland if you wanted to. Yeah, I think one, I can't wait to do another stage as soon as I have some time. And uh, I mean, the past year has been crazy coming in and being the head chef at Pleasantry and just taking that on. Um, when I when things settle down or, or I'm a little better at scheduling and organizing myself, I'd love to go stage. I think everyone should stage. I'm established at Pleasantry. So I think staging is a great way for things not to get stale, you know, go see what some other people are doing. Like it's such a creative environment, you know, working in kitchens, especially if you're working for someone that um, is trying to push the envelope a little bit or even just be around the envelope. I think staging is a great way to keep in touch, share ideas, go see like there's so many things I've seen going to stage at a different kitchen or going out to eat where I'm just like, wow, I've never seen that before. And that's a great idea. Like I'm going to, I don't want to say like, I'm going to steal this, but I'm definitely influenced by this and going to take like what I've seen back to my kitchen and try and implement some of that. But I also think you learn a lot, not just from staging, you just learn a lot from being around experienced cooks. You know, like I've worked with people at Pleasantry, we've had people come through and We've had some good cooks come through that in in just from standing next to them on the line, you just pick up so much where you're just like, oh, that's such an easier way to get from A to B or, oh, that's a little bit of this and that. And all of a sudden my sauce is just so much better. It's just these little tips and tricks you pick up along the way. Yeah. I mean, that's that's everything. If you want to be a successful chef, you need to be open-minded and you need to be taking influence and looking everywhere for it. So when you're at Pleasantry, you're sous chef, and eventually COVID kind of happens. Evan Hartman announces, you know, he's leaving the restaurant. They kind of ask you to, to move up to executive chef. What was that feeling like when they asked you? At first, it was exhilarating, you know, because before you're a chef, 
you're spending all of your time thinking about being a chef, you know, and when you become a sous chef, you're like, wow, like I'm, I'm one step closer. So at first I was just, I was over the moon. I was stoked. I was like, wow. Like, but then it very quickly set in that I had been unemployed for the past year and kind of lost touch with cooking a little bit. I don't really cook at home. I'm pretty unrefined at home, actually. Like I am a chicken wings and sandwiches kind of guy. But when I'm in the kitchen, I get, that's when I really try and like, I don't know, see how far I can go, how far I can take something. So um, it, it set in very quickly that I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to have to like step up if I want to be successful at this. And I had a moment of panic after that where I went in and I actually told Evan, I was like, I don't think I can do this, man. And he was like, wait, what? And I was like, I, I don't think I want to do this. I don't think I want this job. And I was purely speaking from like panic, you know, and what he was always so great at is he just, you know, he took a deep breath and he was just like, well, why? Through Evan fashion, he just, he just talked me through it and uh, made some points, told me, you know, he's like, well, here's what I think. And, you know, just for whatever reason, he's just always had a way to like make sense whenever I've talked to him, like whenever I bring a problem to him, he, he's just always been amazing at catching it and, and turning it into something that doesn't look like such a problem anymore. And by the end of the conversation, you know, I was like, he basically talked me off the ledge. And uh, I texted him a few months into being a chef. And I was like, thank you so much for, you know, being there for me, because this experience has been amazing. And, uh, you know, I almost walked away from it. If you hadn't said the right words to me, I don't know where I'd be right now. So yeah, I had a moment of panic and then um, I got over that and just, it was let's go. And there was a huge learning curve, especially coming off of being unemployed, but also just stepping into a chef position at Pleasantry. You know, I'm like, man, this place has a reputation. And sure, I've, I've helped with that a little bit being the sous chef, but it's never been all on my shoulders before. I was like, well, let's go. Let's see. This is it. It felt like sink or swim, you know, like, are, are you... You've been saying for years that you're going to be a chef one day, right? Like now is your chance. Like, what are you going to do? And now we're eight months in and, you know, I feel like a chef most days, not every day, but most days. What was the most difficult part about being an executive chef for the first time? Staffing people in general, you know, I don't care how well you can cook. That's never going to make you a good chef. You have to be able to take on people's problems, take on people's personality, their attitudes. You need to be able to direct people. You kind of have to be this like coach, this therapist, this mentor. You have to be all these things wrapped up in one because, um, you know, cooks are, they're an interesting breed of people. You know, they're a little strange and um, require special maintenance from time to time. And if you don't understand that language, I just remember my dog days of cooking so well that I understand where all my cooks are coming from, from from my most experienced cook who's has chef experience and is just like line cooking now waiting for his next big gig to my youngest cook who I don't know if he's ever really thought about taking kitchens seriously. You just have to learn how to get the most out of them, you know, make them feel like they want to be there because right now there's always another restaurant that's going to pay them a dollar or two more to get them from you or get them in the door. So there's this thing in kitchens. I remember when I started, you know, you just got talked to like shit all the time. You know, like you just, if you messed up, it was like, when I worked at Teller's, they called me Bobby Hill. And that was just my nickname. And it got to the point where like, I didn't even question it. No one questioned it. I was just Bobby Hill. I was Bobby. It was like, but you know, I couldn't imagine doing that to one of my cooks now. That's been the, the hardest part is uh, having a cook come up to you in the middle of service and just being like, 
I think I need to go home. Like something's not right. Like I don't feel good or something's wrong. Like, and you're just like, we have an hour left. Like you need to do this right now. And they're like, yeah. And you're like, okay, man, like you go home, text me tomorrow. Tell me how you feel. We'll talk about it. And, and just always having to be open to like people. It's exhausting, but it's also rewarding when they start to respond to you or like, you know, most of my cooks have openly said like, if you leave, I leave, you know, and that, that's, as much as I'm like, oh, you shouldn't do that. It feels good to just have that loyalty. You have to kind of inspire that in people. You have to be a leader. If you can't do that first and foremost, it doesn't matter how well you can cook or what your ideas are. You're you're never going to run a successful kitchen, in my opinion. Staffing issues are like across the board, any industry. It doesn't matter if it's office workers, healthcare, nurses, like there's staffing challenges everywhere. With restaurants, is it as simple as just like, for a lot of people, oh, this restaurant over here offered me like a couple bucks more an hour. I've had a few cooks handle it different ways, but yeah, more or less, it's pretty much like that. And, and you can't blame them either because at the end of the day, we all have bills to pay and we all got to make money, you know? So if there's a restaurant that's going to give you $2 more an hour for what is essentially kind of the same job, you know, I, I can't ask you to like me so much that you're going <laughs> to do that. So you got to meet them somewhere in the middle and just kind of figure it out and maybe work something out because like they might not want to leave, but they do want a little more money. And it's not like a loyalty thing. You know, it's not like they're leaving to make the same amount of money. Most of the time when a cook comes up to me and is saying like, hey, I got an offer here for this much. It's a significant amount more, you know, and, um, you know, I've had cooks come up to me and say like, hey, I love it here. You know, I'm not trying to leave. But uh, uh, here's just the situation. Like I've got, I got bills to pay and uh, I can get more money from this place. Can you guys do anything about that? I'm like, well, yeah, I got to sit down and I got to talk with Dan and, uh, you know, figure out what we can do. And then we come back and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. But the, the ones it's worked out for, I've been thankful for because, you know, they're people I can count on and they're people that I can like have, like I can ask them to do anything for the kitchen and with the kitchen. And, and they're usually like, yes, chef, like I got it. But yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy out there right now. And I think everybody's just afraid to get taken advantage of, you know, there's been so many, the environment has just changed where, you know, people don't want to feel like they're giving themselves away for a low hourly wage or for no benefits or something like that. They're like, why am I doing this? And, you know, I'm like, well, if you don't want to be a chef, if you don't ever see yourself running your own kitchen or even owning your own restaurant, I would understand why you're mostly worried about money. But uh, I try and, you know, I was never, whether it's to my detriment or not, I never cared about money, really. I was always more concerned about the food and learning. And, uh, you know, that was kind of my main priority. And because when I was working at Pleasantry as, as a salary employee, people would be like, why are you salary? Like, that's such a ripoff. You got to work 50 plus hours a week. Like, you should be hourly. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm, I really feel like I'm learning the skills that I'm going to need to do what I want to do one day. So far, it's worked out for me. With like new restaurants opening in Cincinnati, any city really, but Cincinnati is a little unique because you have Kentucky right across the border, Louisville, which is only an hour away, and then Columbus appears about 90 minutes or so. Like every time you see a new restaurant opening in Cincinnati, you're like, oh, that's awesome. We got a new restaurant. But at the same time, you're like, fuck, they're going to need people. Yeah, I don't know. It's... We're pretty lucky at Pleasantry because our staff is so small. You know, when a new restaurant opens, and this is going to sound terrible, but my first thought is like, hmm, I wonder how long that's going to be there. Because it's just like, especially with 3CDC just popping off places left and right and OTR, I'm just like, how saturated is too saturated? 
of a market, you know, and I, you know, it's just, it's just frustrating because there's a lot of cooks that just get caught up in that game of like bouncing from place to place, you know, trying to get more money or whatever. And I'm like, I've been with Pleasantry for the past five years. I'm, I've never meant to do that. I don't know how it happened really. It's like kind of crazy, but I'm just of a mindset where I'm like, you guys should just really find a place you like and just stick with it instead of just always having to start over and work at this place for a few months and then that place. And, you know, it's, uh, I think there's, there's a half a dozen restaurants in Cincinnati that are worth their weight and salt or gold or whatever you want the saying is. Yeah. I don't know when new restaurants, plus not a lot of new concepts open. Not, there's not a lot of places that are offering like it's all these like fast casual places or it's just like weird distant chains that are trying their hand at Cincinnati um, or people with too much space for the wrong vision. There's just a lot going on with restaurants downtown for sure right now. But I think a little competition is good, I guess. Keeps us honest, keeps us straight. What's the craziest thing or most out there dish that you've gotten on the menu at Pleasantry during your time there? And then what's the one dish that you thought would get on the menu, but didn't? Wow. I'm not sure, to be honest. I'm pretty much always winging it. I'm just not good at coming up with an idea. And never have I ever had an idea in my head that perfectly translated to the plate. There's always this like curve. Anything good usually goes on the menu. I've never made anything good. And we've been like, nah, we're not going to put that on the menu. But uh, I would say Parmesan ice cream. We got this ice cream machine in and uh, I was struggling to make a good ice cream. You know, I was like asking all my chef friends and I was looking on YouTube and stuff, trying to like get up to date and just be like, what, like, how does a creme anglaise like turn into ice cream? Like I keep doing, you know, and just researching and researching. I found this recipe for Parmesan ice cream and I was like, no way is this good. Um, So I made a batch. I made the creme anglaise for it, tasted it. And I was like, well... I mean, it kind of tastes like ice cream. It's okay. But something magical happens when you churn it. And when it comes out as this like fresh churned ice cream, it is crazy tasting. It tastes like buttery, like caramely almost. You know, that was just messing around, but I forget how it got on the menu, but it eventually it just started kind of taking off. We had this comedian come through um, recently and, and she just loved it and posted it on her Instagram. And then that whole weekend, we just had people coming in purely because they saw it on her Instagram and wanted to like try pleasantry and try the Parmesan ice cream. And I was just like, this is, and now it's like one of those things where I don't think we'll ever take it off the menu, you know? Yeah, it's definitely unique. And like you see it on the menu because when we were there, it was on the menu and it was like, I wonder what that tastes like. And then you have it and it, it doesn't taste like what your brain would think it would taste like. Not at all. I love it. Um, And it's so funny to see people's reaction to it too, because some people eat it and you just see their eyes light up. They're like, this is the best thing I've ever had. And then some people eat it and they're just like, I can't believe I just paid for this. And you're just, you know, it's just so funny to see like how people perceive it or taste it. However, you know, some people are really into it. Some people don't like, don't like the savory, even though I don't think it's even, it's slightly savory. Just people don't like that at all with their desserts. I think balancing savory and sweet is probably going to be like my, if I'm ever known for something like that's going to be it. Cause I, I love taking like a sweet dish and making it like, Oh, is this even a dessert anymore? You don't know. Like it's right on the line. It's on the cusp. And then taking a savory dish and being like turning black garlic into dessert somehow. And I, I find a lot of joy in that. It's fun. 
You've been at Pleasant Tree, like you said, for over five years. What's your best working with Dan Souter story? Oh, okay. I've got it. So what we do at Pleasant Tree, what Dan and I really click on, you know, and what he's helped me reach is, is understanding hospitality, you know, and, and I always try and tell the servers, I'm like, treat, treat this shift. Like they're coming into your house. You know what I mean? Like this is your house. You're let's be hospitable. Um, things like that. Just like little things you can't really teach people. But, um, so one time we were, we were super busy from the past at Pleasantry. I can see the whole dining room. I know all the tables. Like I am always scanning the looks on people's faces. And then Dan is, he's got glasses in his hand. He walks by me and I just go, Hey, 23 needs a wobble wedge. And he doesn't even say anything. He might've nodded his head, but he just reaches in his back pocket, pulls out a wobble wedge. And then like one motion fixes their table and just moves on. And I was just like, that's a, that's a professional right there. Did y'all just see that? Did y'all just take notes? You know, he had it in his pocket. It didn't even like, you know, half the time all the servers have to go find it. And then they're over at the table and the people look uncomfortable because they're all up in their space and trying to get their table not to wobble. And he just did it so smooth and without missing a beat. And I was just like, that's how you do it guys. And that's how you do it right there. He was probably carrying that in his pocket for like three weeks and like never got to use it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like at the end of the day, when you go home and you put like your keys and your wallet on your nightstand, I'm pretty sure there's a wobble wedge in there with it all. Just because our, for whatever reason, our floor, it just gets a little bit more slightly warped each year. So, you know, we, we rely on the wobble wedges a lot. I get frustrated sometimes because I'm just like, everybody here knows that all these tables need a wobble wedge and just wish you guys were a little more quick with it because for whatever reason, older folks hate a wobbly table. Younger people are usually pretty uh, easier to kind of deal with. I don't know if there's like a shift in expectations when you reach a certain age or maybe if just like what restaurants were a couple of generations ago were different. But uh, older people, if, if they come in and they sit down at the table and it's wobbly, you can see it in their face. They're like, they're judging you. You know, they're making checks in their, in their mental notebook. So it's actually more important than you think to like get the table settled. I, I don't, it's the strangest thing, but I'm um, like, that is a huge... I've literally watched people come in, sit down, shake the table, and then both the uh, a woman and her husband are just sitting there like shaking the table, like getting more and more upset. And I'm like, can someone please go help them before they just leave a bad Yelp review or something? <laughs> this was probably four or five years ago, maybe. It's one of the seasons of like Shark Tank somewhere in there, but some guy invented something that you put on the bottom of like dining room tables and chairs. And it's supposed to help balance it. I think you just like nail it in with a hammer and it kind of like unscrews itself. I have no idea if this thing's still even around. I remember he didn't get like any sort of deal or anything because they were like, that's a product, not a company. But but yeah, I wonder what happened with that guy. Because I think he was trying to get it like into like Home Depot and stuff like that. And I don't know if it ever happened. That's the only thing I've ever seen where somebody's designed some little attachment to like balance out tables. Aside from seeing somebody like drill a hole out of it and then like drill a screw with a, a little kind of spinny end on there. So it's a issue that plagues all restaurants. I think everybody has like one table that just doesn't, you know, sit right. It always seems. Uh, I mean, the person that invents the self-adjusting dining room table is going to be a rich, rich person. What exactly is this like bike polo sport thing that you're involved in? Uh, I was hoping we'd get to bike polo. Now this is when the real conversation begins. The basics of it is it's like hockey, but you play it on bikes. I've been riding bikes since, uh, you know, I was a kid. I've always had a bike. 
you know, when I was in high school, I'd ride my bike to school. And now that I'm an adult, I, I, in the summertime, especially I ride my bike to work, you know, several times a week, I ended up finding a group of friends that, uh, like to ride bikes a lot. And, uh, so there's a little club in Cincinnati called Cincinnati Hardcore Bike Polo. And uh, I met all these guys going on a, uh, we had a Thursday night ride we would do where we'd all meet up, you know, a 12 pack of beer and your basket on your bike and just hit all the spots in Cincinnati, have a few beers, laugh, move on to the next spot, ride around. And I was like, see, this is, this is great. Like, you know, you always see these guys in like bibs all raced up on their $3,500 bikes, just like cruising for miles. And I'm like, that's cool, but that's not really my style. And then I met all these guys and here we are like 2 a.m. drinking beer on the bridge, you know, riding our bikes around. And I was like, well, this is a kind of a misfit crew. It's kind of fun. And then they invited me to a, a newbie night, a Cincinnati hardcore bike polo newbie night. At the time, we had some of the best players around in our club. So I show up on a Wednesday night at like 7.30 or 8. Uh, I, all I know is like late in the afternoon, like almost about to get dark. And I'm like, how long are we going to be here? And all of a sudden I see these guys pull a generator out of a truck and then they set up all these light posts and they turn this generator on and we must've played bike polo to like 11 or midnight. And I was like, this is so cool. But, uh, I got on a bike for the first time on the court. They handed me a mallet. They just said, that's the ball. All you got to do right now as a new player is just try and hit that ball. So we played a few games. So I got kind of into it and, uh, I scored this goal and I was so pumped that I scored this goal that I, I just like slammed on the brakes, flipped over the handlebars, knocked the wind out of myself, probably the first time in a decade. I can't remember the last time I couldn't breathe like that. Uh, and from that moment on, I, I was just hooked. I was like, this is so much fun. So this is like a legit organization, right? Uh, more or less. I mean, it depends on the city. Um, there's, there's basically a bike polo club in every major city. And some of the bigger ones, honestly, are in smaller cities where there's, you know, less to do. So people, that's like your whole social network is like these people that you go out on Sunday night with to, you know, drink beer and slap balls around. But, uh, and it's very inclusive too. Like, are, are you a new player? Are you good? Are you bad? Like, are you anyone at all? There's no, like, it's such an leveling sport. You, just because you're strong doesn't mean you're going to be good at it. You can be short, tall, bigger, smaller. Like there's no real advantage. Like, you know, obviously if you're very athletic, you're probably going to be able to ride a little faster, but like anybody can go out there and compete if, if you take it seriously. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's very, it's just one of the most inclusive things I've ever done. Everybody's welcome all the time. Like it's very cool. And I love being able to go that week. I went to Chicago to stage. I took my polo bike with me and, uh, on my way out, I hit up the club and I was just like, Hey, uh, you guys playing this Sunday? I'm from Cincinnati, but I've got my bike with me. And they were like, yeah, we're playing at like one, come on through. And so I just got to go hang out with a bunch of people and meet, I don't know, a dozen or more people and play polo with them. And it was just like, we've been homies for years, you know, it's very welcoming. Yeah. And you can go all over the country and do that. There's always a club willing to give you a, not so much in COVID, you know, cause people got, wasn't exactly cool to just let strangers in your house during COVID. But before COVID, you could go anywhere and most likely have a place to crash and have some people to hang out with and play polo with. So is it like almost like a softball league where like there's different teams or like, is it just whoever's available that day and you just chop up teams that way? Are you guys at just like an outdoor basketball court or what's like the location? Yeah, it's just like outdoor basketball. We just play pickup. You know, everybody shows up, you shuffle the mallets every game. 
The real fun are the tournaments that get held. There are some crazy tournaments that happen all over the country. Each city has kind of their yearly tournament, more or less, that they do. So in Cincinnati, we do the uh, Cincinnati three-way. It kind of gets classified as a party tournament um, because it's there is a like governing body of bike puller like rules and tournaments called the NAH. But uh, some people don't really vibe with it because they think that polo should be you know more wild, more free, more chaotic, more about fun, less about winning. Um, so there's kind of two schools of thoughts, but. The Cincinnati three-way is a bike polo tournament in which you play bike polo, foosball, and flip cup to kind of decide the winner. So it's best two out of three. So if you win your bike polo match, you go to foosball. And if you win your foosball match, then you win the round. But if you lose your foosball match and it's like tied at one-to-one, you got to play a game of flip cup to decide who goes on. So um, honestly, that's like the most fun I've ever had in my life are those weekends just getting rowdy. Is it five on five or three on three or like how many people on each side? It's three on three, but there are tournaments where you where you play squad and just like you would at hockey, you, there's a couple of people on the bench waiting to relieve you when you get tired because you do get absolutely, I mean, you get so exhausted out there. So if you play three on three, it's probably going to be a 10 or 15 minute game. Um, squad games are like 30 to 40 minutes. Yeah, that's usually at like more upscale more stakes tournaments, like the real players, the people that like get up every morning and practice, like that's where you're going to see the crazy stuff. And is it like equipment wise? I mean, is it just a a standard polo mallet or is it like a croquet mallet? I don't know if there's a difference between the two, maybe by weight or something like that. And then like, do you guys have to wear like shin guards or like helmets or anything? Or is it like all you need is really a mallet and a bike and like any other equipment is on you. Like if you're cool with no equipment, like that's fine. Or if, if you want like safety equipment, like bring your own kind of thing. Yeah, it's that's 100% how it works. You can spend as much money as you want on this sport or you can show up with a dumpster bike and an old helmet from the thrift store. It really doesn't matter. You know, everybody's included. I would say that most people see what these people can do on their bikes, you know, so you kind of you're like, wow, like that person rides like one of the bike polo companies is enforcer. So they're polo specific frames. And you just see people out there jumping and pivoting and doing these like 180s and these crazy scoop shots. And you're like, I want to do that. So like, then you go and buy the cool bike or whatever. But I'm kind of somewhere in between like I have a nice polo bike, and I have a good mallet. and, And that's about it. But there are people that have probably $1,500 into their rig between their frame and their wheels and their components and stuff. And uh, to be honest with you, like if I was, if I was doing it more and taking it more seriously, I would 100% invest because, you know, I love building things like that. But yeah, right now I just rock a pretty, pretty standard polo setup. But if you're a new player, chances are you're just on like an old thrift store, 26 inch mountain bike. Yeah. I've never heard of it. It sounds like something that originated in Portland. It actually, the first bike polo game was an exhibition for, I want to say like the 19, early 1900s Olympic games um, was the first time bike polo was ever played. Um, And it was played on grass, I believe. I want to say the 80s, maybe the late 80s, bicycle messengers kind of simultaneously on the West and East Coast started playing it as a way to kill downtime on their shifts. And then it just kind of picked up from there. And next thing you know, there's a bike polo club in Cincinnati, Ohio. I think most people in my club started playing around 2009 or 2010. Like we call them the old heads. You know, they're the ones that like don't really care. They just go out to play. I've been playing for about 
three or four years now. Uh, it's been great. You know, it's one of the coolest things I've done in my life so far is meet these people and play this crazy game and go to tournaments. And I went to a tournament in St. Louis where the whole premise of it is you just stay up for 24 hours playing bike polo. Um, and I, I, I had a great time, but I will never do it again. Ooh, I was destroyed. I think I had back problems for like a year after that. You're from Cincinnati, you know, like you said, born and raised. Why do you think Cincinnati is like so overlooked in the hierarchy of great food cities? Um, because I think for a long time, we didn't have any great food. You know, we're, we've got a huge Greek and German like community, like, so like Skyline, you know, you've got this Greek flavor profiles in there. And then all across the country, all people do is talk shit about it. They're just like, what is this wet chili that they're putting on hot dogs and pasta? Like, this is crazy. Like no one understands it. And, uh, you know, I just think that until recently, there just wasn't a lot going on or, or maybe that I was aware of. You know, I remember when I worked at Teller's, I thought Teller's was like this crazy nice restaurant. And looking back now at it from places I've worked and places I've, I've eaten at, you know, I'm just like, wow, that was basically like a souped up Applebee's. For whatever reason, I think Cincinnati just got overlooked for years, whether it was our fault or not. But I, I think there was a cultural shift at some point where they, they started saying like, okay, these old river towns with all these old neighborhoods and old architecture and old character are actually like really cool. You know, like I love it personally. Um, I never meant to stay here my whole life. You know, I've lived, I've lived in Baltimore. I've lived in Cleveland. I've lived in Myrtle Beach, like for these like little short spells. But yeah, for most of my life, I've just been here in Cincinnati. And now that I'm like in my 30s, I, I actually truly love Cincinnati. I think it's awesome. I just love a gritty river town. Like I love Cleveland. People hate, like talk shit about Cleveland all the time. And I'm just like, I love Cleveland. I think it's the grittiest, like nastiest place. Like, and I love it. I'm like, yeah, I, I go down to Nashville and I'm like, well, this place is awesome, but it's, it's clean. It's, it's, there's like a, a, a vibe there. That's just not as like, I don't know. It's just not as rough. I, I just really dig the old, the old heritage, the old culture of like a, a river city or an old timey city. There's an authenticity to it. Like Nashville is like everybody's pretty much from somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, it's a really, really cool place. There's a lot of cool stuff going on there, um, but it doesn't have its own story yet. It's still so young, you know, but Cincinnati has been here for, I don't know what, going on 200 years now, maybe more. I don't know for sure. But I just love the old buildings. I love the river. I love the bridges. I love the hills. I really love the hills. I love, I've been to all, every park around here. I've seen the city from every angle you can possibly see it at. I love the hills. Is there any type of food that just doesn't seem to work in Cincinnati? I don't know. I think people are pretty open to food. I think it's mostly like how it's presented. I don't think people in Cincinnati like anything too pretentious or too fussy. Um, they're just not there for it, you know? And what I've found success with is like taking, taking familiar dishes and just putting like a fresh spin on it or just like elevating it slightly or just presenting it a little bit different, but it's essentially the same thing. I think that's what people, I think that's what the general masses look for. If, if you come in with your, your, your foams and your gels and all that, I think you're going to lose people really fast in this city. You might have a few really dedicated like foodies that are like, this is sick, but I don't know if you're going to be able to make your rent every month. Where do you think the food scene in Cincinnati is headed for the next eight years, the rest of the decade? I think we're going to keep following this trend that's been going on for the past several years where people are waking up and realizing that, you know, like you got to do local. 
got to be talking to the farms. You, you know, I, I, if I have to buy conventional produce or meat, like I feel bad, like I feel guilty about it. Um, but sometimes you got to do what you have to do to make the clock turn. But um, I really think that that is what we need to do. I would love to get in touch with like a community farm. We have all these little urban plots all over Cincinnati where people grow stuff. And I just think it would be, we, we have like bigger, we have like the big version of that. Um, there are a few of like these collectives of farms that you can get produce from, but I'd like to take it even smaller scale and, and be able to like, like I would love if, you know, Pleasantry owned an acre like down this, not that this is plausible, but just to fantasize, like I'd love to be in a restaurant where, you know, you go out back and pick some vegetables and that's your feature tonight. You're like, oh, the kale is, kale's ready to pick. So tonight we're going to be doing this kale salad or this braised kale dish or something like that. It's got a trend in that direction. I think, I think we are. I mean, that's where I'm taking it. That's what I, I like, what I want to do is just use as much local and yeah, as much local stuff as I possibly can. What's next for you professionally? Do you want to open your own restaurant one day or just talked about kind of the true farm to table kind of aspect, but you know, what else do you see yourself doing kind of down the road? That's a great question. And I don't have an answer for it. I feel like there's still so much that I need to accomplish uh, inside of the doors of pleasantry before I think about that. You know, I think, I think about opening my own restaurant a lot, but I think about it in the same way that I used to think about like going on tour, you know, it's just like a fun thought when you're in the shower, you're just like, yeah, and I'd call it this and it'd look like that. And, um, but that's, that's just all masturbatory stuff, you know, where you're just like, yeah. And I'd be like the coolest chef in town, blah, 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 blah. But, uh, I think for now, at least for the next couple of years, you know, I'm probably going to stay put and, and just try and be the best chef that I can really make sure that I've got a grasp on myself and the situation. And, and, you know, I think what I need to work on most right now is finding my identity in the kitchen and solidifying that. And hopefully that, that remains profitable for me, remains, uh, you know, sustainable and everything. But I'm pretty, uh, whimsical person. You know, I, I could change my mind at the drop of a hat. And, you know, I work on cars as a hobby. You know, I've always been like that. That's something I could do, I guess, if I ever didn't want to cook anymore. But, uh, I honestly just feel like it just sometimes feels so, natural for me to be in the kitchen that I just can't imagine myself doing anything else. Like it just feels like I'm supposed to be there sometimes. Like I found my calling. This question comes from previous guest, sommelier Amanda Moss. She left behind a question for you. You get to have one wine, the last wine you're ever going to drink. What is it? It's going to be something sparkling and it's going to be a light red or something. Um, Man, we've gotten so many great pet nats in at Pleasantry and, and I'm still very, I'm still such a novice when it comes to wine. You know, for the longest time, I didn't pay attention to it. And now recently I'm like, well, you know, I'm a chef, so I, I should really start learning about these grapes and the process and all this. But uh, definitely it's like a light bodied sparkling red, like a red pet nat. Man, I, I'll just drink that forever. I love it. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything. Man, I don't know. I'm so unprepared. I'm also a little hungover from celebrating last night. Uh, the Bengals win, got caught up in the hype and the momentum. I would just say, like, what are you doing to keep your philosophy fresh and relative in the workplace? And, uh, you know, how are you, how does that, that translate into what you do? This next question comes from one of our listeners. What is the most underrated seasoning, in your opinion? I feel like. Turmeric might be the most underrated seasoning, uh, but might be the most rated seasoning too. I don't know. It's just something that I turn to time and time again that I never expect to, but I'm always just like, 
It needs turmeric. Don't know why. Mostly, I just love spices and ingredients that turn things really bright colors. I love like, you know, turmeric. If I'm making like a lemon puree or anything like that, I, I definitely throw turmeric in it. And I'm just like, this is my little secret. My like, you know, my go-to thing is just throw some turmeric in it and turn it really bright yellow or bright orange or something and just flashes. So the next set of questions we have, we asked, uh, everybody comes on the podcast, there's a nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. So who is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far? It's probably a tie between like Evan and Dan. They've, they both have just given me room to, you know, grow. They've given me room to, to be myself, you know, which isn't always like a stable person, but they've let me like work it out. And uh, they've mostly encouraged me every step of the way. You know, Dan's always, you know, for Christmas, since I've worked at Pleasantry, Dan's pretty much always gotten me a cookbook or, and, uh, you know, he always is down to go on an R&D trip. And uh, he's just really, for whatever reason, he just, you know, has shown a little bit of belief in, in what I can do. And, and I mean, that's just, that's worth so much for a young cook trying to come up and figure out who they are in a kitchen. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Oh, a spoon. I, I mean, I've got so many spoons. I've got like a spoon addiction. I go to the thrift store and I see a spoon that's got like a cool handle or it just looks any different. I'm immediately going to buy it. I've got so many spoons. I can't even fit them all in my vein. I have to like, I have to do this thing where I go through them and I'm like, which ones do I want to use tonight? Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own? I'd probably have to give a shout out to Kiki and College Hill. Me and my girlfriend, we go there pretty much every Sunday. You know, it's just a fun spot, Um, good food. And, you know, I, I just, Hideki, the chef there is, you know, a Cincinnati guy who's done, been a part of some cool stuff and just, you know, I've just never had a bad anything there. Kind of my go-to on Sunday nights. And, uh, and they're a small place and they're up in College Hill. So there's not like they're down in OTR or Covington where there's all this like crazy foot traffic. Um, so I really feel like you got to send people there. You got to be like, Hey, you need to make the extra five minutes or 10 minutes and get out to this place and check it out. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant, any place that you haven't been that you want to go to place that you haven't eaten at and want to eat at? I have to make it to the Grand Canyon and the Redwood Forest ASAP. That's definitely like a priority. It's on the bucket list for sure. If I don't get to see a giant Redwood tree before I die, I'm going to come back as a ghost. You know, I'm not going to be able to move on. Um, And then as far as restaurant, I know that when I come back and listen to this, I'm going to have so many better answers and, and better ideas. But I think I would just really like to get back to Chicago and eat at Giant again. Yeah, I've tried it. So it's not a restaurant I haven't tried. But uh, everything has... My perception of, of food has changed so much, especially in the past year. And, and when I went to Chicago the first time, that was just like one restaurant that left a huge impression on me. It just remind, reminded me of Pleasantry. It was this tiny little kitchen and all the cooks were just like in t-shirts and aprons and they were just working out of delis. And it was just one of the best meals I had while I was there. And, and I've been thinking about it every day since. And now that I'm a chef and now that I know, you know, just now that my perception of, of food has is, is changed, I'd, I'd love to get back there and see if I remember it the same way. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Oh man, this is another one I know I'm going to come back and have a better answer for. I'm terrible at thinking on the spot. I've definitely seen like a lot of fights, a lot of like really heavy confrontations. I've got a great story that's uh, definitely not safe for work is one of the craziest things I've ever heard in a kitchen is um, I was a food runner at Teller's. The turnover rate for that job was crazy. So there might be a new person every week. We have this one guy running food. 
And uh, he just wasn't a natural at it, you know? So some people aren't made to be in that environment that, you know what I mean? And the manager was giving him a hard time and the food runner just put down the food and looked at the guy and went, hey man, I don't come into the office, slap the dick out of your mouth and tell you how to do your job. And the whole kitchen just like, it was, you could have heard a pen drop. And then the whole kitchen just erupted in laughter. And I mean, that guy got fired, but everybody was clapping for him on the way out. And I just, I was young. I'd never heard anybody talk to anybody like that before like that. And I was just like, you can say that? It just, I don't know. For me, it was like, I don't, it's, it might be weird for me to say this, but it was, it was kind of influential because I was just like, okay, so you can stand up for yourself a little bit. You don't have to just like take everybody's crap here all the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, he for sure got fired, but it was, I, it was one of the most amazing things I've ever heard come out of a person's mouth, like in a moment of like, he, he didn't roll over. He just was like, he gave it right back. And I was just like, whoa. <laughs> food or drink guilty pleasures or anything that like fast food or when you're in the grocery store, you try and kind of avoid an aisle because, you know, this thing's down there. Anything like that, that you just can't help yourself. Man, me and my girlfriend have a guilty pleasure of a restaurant called Rooster's. It is such a Midwest chain, but their wings are so fucking good. And uh, I mean, sometimes we just have nights where we just look at each other and we're just like roosters and we're just like roosters. And it's so trashy. I mean, we get we get this thing called dumpster tots and it comes with dumpster sauce. And it's it's just it's just our little thing, you know, where, where we're just like, yeah, we don't really I, I don't advertise it too much, but that's definitely our guilty pleasure food wise. And as far as drink goes, my guilty pleasure is, I don't know, I don't really have anything I'm ashamed of to drink. Definitely don't like beer that much at all. And I always feel like, you know, like people just expect like chef, you know, chef dude to be drinking beer. And I'm like, no, I want like a spritzer or something. Like, I don't, I don't <laughs> like I want like something kind of sweet and you know, some juice. You got any juice? Like definitely like I hate IPAs. I don't know why. I mean, I just can't. I'm just like, I don't. Beer is, beer is barely good to begin with, let alone you're going to make it taste even more beery. I don't, I don't know what's going on here. Not for me. Which of these would you say is the best chef movie? Uh, so Burnt, which is the one with Bradley Cooper. Chef, which is the food truck one with Jon Favreau. Pig with Nicolas Cage. Julia and Julia. I think Meryl Streep's in that one. No Reservations with like Catherine Zeta-Jones. Ratatouille, which is the Pixar movie. The Ramen Girl with... Brittany Murphy or Eastside Sushi? So I've, I haven't seen most of those, to be honest. But I thought Chef was wonderful. I thought it was really funny. But Ratatouille, uh, it's been a while since I've seen it. But as I remember, I think they do a pretty good job of actually capturing the hierarchy of a kitchen. And of course, they kind of go, I mean, it gets pretty Disney and they're pretty fast with like unrealistic like endings, you know, like everybody is happy. Um, it doesn't always work like that. But as far as like, the layout of the kitchen and, and the hierarchy there. When, when I first saw that movie, I was like, that's kind of, I wonder if anybody in Disney kind of worked in a kitchen and, or if they just did their research right or something. I think Thomas Keller consulted on that movie. He would have had to because like there was one scene where I'm like, the motions, like they've got like one person over on this flat top stirring a pot and then they've got like, you can just tell who the sous chef is and like who the chef is and like all the Kami people. And I was like, they nailed that. That's hilarious. Favorite dish, favorite thing you've ever cooked, created back at your career thus far? And you can kind of point to this thing like almost like your aha moment. That's the moment you knew you could do this professionally. You know, that honestly happens like every day for me right now. It's like every day I am creating something that keeps me like going, you know, where I'm just like, okay, cool. Like this, I'm getting better and better and better. I don't know if I ever had a specific dish that, um, 
was an aha moment for me. To, to be completely like honest, creating dishes was a huge struggle for me for the longest time. I don't know if I just like thought about it too much or had a mental block, but my, my strength is in like, like Evan would be making a dish and he'd have the flavor profiles. And then like, I always had something to add, you know, like, well, that's like, that's a great idea, but like, let's, you know, I'd have my suggestions and I think that's truly, you know, the, the best part about cooking is like collaborating as a chef. I, you know, I've had to come up with ideas and, and stuff, but like this weekend, we actually ran this bacon wrapped cobia dish. Um, and, and I just, it was really good. And I was really proud of myself. And, uh, you know, it was one of those dishes where every time one went out, I was just like, yeah, man, like that is such a good fucking dish. Like, I just wanted to yell it at people like, get the cobia, get the cobia. Like, don't even mess around with anything else tonight. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. If you were, is there a moment, scene, episode stands out to you about him that you always kind of remember? If you weren't, is there anybody who was like a TV culinary personality, uh, you know, a Michael Simon, a Bobby Flay, Julia Child, somewhere you kind of always gravitated towards when you were coming up? Not really. I mean, I'm 100% uh, an Anthony Bourdain fan. You know, I'm not trying to jump on on the like fandom bus, but I think that that person helped bring this industry to light. You know, if you were to look at the history of chefhood and, and cooking and all of that, you know, he, he, Kitchen Confidential is just like, without that, there's something cathartic about it. You know, just like it made every cook feel seen. It made every like crazy, mentally unstable person that was working 50 hours a week and struggling with a drug addiction and going into a kitchen, it, it, it just made them feel seen. And you know, like I didn't read Kitchen Confidential for the longest time. Like everybody knew about it. And I, I just like don't know how I never got there. You know, so I would say like two years ago, I actually like got it for Christmas and read it. And I was just like, this is so good. Like everything he talks about was just like, yes. You know, like every chapter you're reading, you're just like, yeah, exactly. It, totally. That's is 100% how it is. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think for my generation of chefs, you know, Anthony Bourdain will live on and like, an infamy, you know, like, cause he talks about chefs in that book where I'm like, I don't know who that is. You know, the next generation will be like, yeah, I think I've heard of Anthony Bourdain. And I'm going to be like, are you kidding me right now? But yeah, I mean, he's just a cool guy. He's a prime example of like mental illness, you know, claiming another beautiful soul, you know, and no matter how many times you tell someone that they're wonderful or that they're worth it or that they have something to offer, it, it's, you know, inside their head, it, it looks different. And you really, you know, it's a dangerous thing. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug all that stuff. Um, you know, I've got an Instagram. My personal Instagram is uh, at bad underscore tie, spelled T-H-A-I. It's a play on pad tie. Very creative, I know. I'm not very active on social media. I think social media is kind of like junk food. It's uh, wonderful and delicious, but if you eat too much of it, you're going to get sick. So I, I don't post very much. I do doom scroll more than I should, but um, it's for me, it's like, um, besides a cookbook, it's like another place where I can uh, absorb like what chefs from all over the country are doing, you know? And, and right now I, I just, I'm, I'm constantly looking for like an edge or like, and it, it all kind of bleeds together and then presents itself like uh, I'll plate something and I'll be like, man, I don't know where that even came from, but like, that's, that looks beautiful or, or like, good job, bro. Like, uh, so I do do that, but yeah, I don't really use social media that much. If, if I can help it, I try not to. And you guys are open, is it Wednesday through Sunday or? Wednesday through Sunday. And, uh, you know, I can, I can probably plug this because uh, you said the episode will come out 
in late February. We're going to be opening for brunch starting February 20th. So we'll be open all day on Sunday for a while. Yeah, Wednesday through Sunday. Are you guys still going to do the chicken sandwiches on Sunday too? Because like Wednesday's like steak and, and fries and then Sunday kind of special is always the chicken sandwich. Yeah, we'll do it because uh, I honestly love eating the leftover chicken sandwiches when I come in on Tuesday to like open the kitchen back up. Kind of the highlight of my week is I'm just like, you know, sure, I have to, you know, this is like my Monday, but there's a chicken sandwich in it for me. So it's all a little bit okay. Follow the, uh, the restaurant accounts, Pleasant Tree OTR website for reservations and stuff too. But the food's awesome. It's an awesome, like small restaurant just off kind of the main drag and over the Rhine there. But Awesome food. You know, we had Dan on the podcast. So awesome to have you on here just because, I mean, you're making the food and and Dan's running the wine program and everything too. So they both complement each other. I don't know, you know, which one gets paired with which, but uh, it just works. One of my favorite restaurants in Cincinnati. Can't wait till we come back. You know, we'll be down there in a couple of weeks. We're trying to revisit everybody that we've had on the podcast, make sure we support everybody as much as we can. So hitting everybody up early in 2022. So we'll be down there in a few weeks to see what's new on the menu. Yeah, anything uh, you ever need from us, feel free to reach out. But again, appreciate you coming on. And like I said, we'll be seeing you soon. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Big thanks again, Chef Tyler Stemmer, for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of one of his days off to chat about his career and working at Pleasantry and everything you know, that he's encountered in the cooking space. And he's Cincinnati, kind of born and bred native. So where he thinks Cincinnati's kind of headed and, and all that stuff. Cincinnati is an awesome food city. If you haven't been there, I highly recommend that you get down there, whether you live in Columbus or Louisville, Indianapolis, like they're all pretty close, drivable anyways, even Nashville, you know, that's not too far of a drive. It's probably like a four or five hour drive. So they got a lot of cool things going on. There's a lot of like chef owned kind of restaurants. I mean, they have some change and stuff like that down there too, but there's a lot more, I feel like chef owned restaurants than say like here in Columbus, you know, we have some, but, but we do have some big corporate kind of restaurant groups that that have a lot of places here too throughout the city. So uh, again, if you haven't been to Pleasantry, make sure to do so. Check out their menu on the website, reservations, all that stuff. On Wednesdays, they do kind of the steak and fries special. Sundays is usually a chicken sandwich special. The fish is excellent. Desserts are, are awesome. Wine list is super creative and unique and everything. So OTR is just a cool neighborhood too as well. You know, I know it's super popular and, and everything like that, but there's a lot of good restaurants that you can just kind of pop into when you're walking up and down. So love Cincinnati. But uh, again, make sure to follow them on Instagram at bad underscore tie. Pleasantry you can find on Instagram too as well at Pleasantry OTR. You can find us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. Twitter and Facebook we use, but it's all linked to the Instagram. So make sure to follow us there. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform that you get your podcast from. If you're new to kind of the podcast, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you for continuing to listen. Continue to help spread the word. Check out the website and we will talk to you guys next week.